A message from our sponsor, Pivot Lending Group, Littleton, Colorado. Pivot Lending Group provides a tailored mortgage lending experience with strong local builder and realtor relationships and customized loan services. We pivot to help you grow in your community and realize your personal home ownership goals. Visit us at pivotlending.com. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Pivot Podcast here on the Mortgage Hub. My name is Tim Regan. I'm your host, as always, the branch manager here for Pivot Lending in Scottsdale, Arizona. And today, man, I've been so lucky with some amazing people to to have taken time to come out and uh, speak with me. This is truly, truly an absolute treat. And so, Without further ado, I'm going to allow my mystery guest here to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about himself. Please go ahead. Hello, everyone. My name is Logan Motoshafi. I am the, uh, uh, I'm officially retired from the mortgage business last year, but I'm the lead analyst of Housing Wire. Um, I created my financial blog many years ago, and uh, all I pretty much do is track a lot of macroeconomic data with the specializing in the housing market. So, uh, for Housing Wire, since uh, last year, what I do is try to portray a very boring but economic take on housing, which I think is more useful than, you know, the kind of the sexy kind of housing's going to crash, housing's going to boom, and keep basically everything on economics. And like I've always said, economics is demographics and productivity. Housing economics is primarily driven by demographics and mortgage rates. And it's not that very sexy of a story, but because of what happened in COVID-19, because I wrote the America's Back Recovery Model on April 7th, 2020, because I said I was really pleading with people not to think that housing was going to crash, my work has gotten a little bit more popular uh, last year. So I, my, what I always want to do is to explain why something happened. It's not, it's not so much of the total answer, but to give people a pathway, to give people some things to really want to track. If you really care about economics, then there are certain things to follow and not kind of fall into the hype, the bullish hype or the bearish hype. That usually is our case, especially after uh, 2008. Yeah. And just just for anybody who doesn't know, Housing Wire is uh, a media site. They do still do they still print? I guess that's a good question. Most yes, everything is online. Do. Is yeah. it? They, they do still print. But one of the foremost places for information in the housing industry and for, for lenders as well. You, you know, what's what's interesting, just so just to get this quick piece of the story, you know, I've I've been following Logan, who uh, who is a professional Twitterer. Is that a word? In my opinion, <laughs> on Twitter for years and years. And so. You know, every now and again, they say, don't meet your your heroes and you can't see, but I'm using air quotes. But I've gotten uh, the opportunity to spend some time and speak with Logan on Clubhouse. Shout out to Clubhouse, which is a social media, an audio chat room, social media app. And he's just amazing and always uh, very willing to give some time, answer some questions to us originators who are in the trenches. And I think, you know, one, I think it's important for him to stick up for the American people and what he believes, right? But also, you've been in our shoes. You, you've you worked in banking forever. Give us a little bit of your, your yeah, background you know, you, know you know what's interesting? Um, one of the reasons why I actually wanted to join Housing Wire is because I thought it'd be a, a good way to talk to uh, loan officers. Uh, our family has been in banking since the late 1950s, but our family's had our own mortgage company here in Southern California since 1987. Uh, I retired last year from it, 
um, so uh, it, it still it's it, it means it means something to me that I could actually just talk to uh, loan officers, but give a just a pure macroeconomic take on things, and you know, because I, I think there's a lot of kind of crazy information, especially with mortgage rates and the bond market over the years. And, and I just want to give my take. So if, you know, nobody has to agree with me or my models or anything like that, but uh, just another voice uh, that, uh, and maybe loan officers can understand what I, what I'm trying to say uh, at times, maybe better than some other people. So it, it was fun for me. It's been, it's been really good connecting uh, with uh, other loan officers over the years. Yeah, it's uh, it, you know we're uh, we're a unique um, set of, of skills that we have to have to to do what we do and and get deals done and you know between understanding what's going on in the market, understanding what's going on in borrowers' lives, and sellers' lives, and real estate agents' lives, you know. Yeah, and, and, it, can and be, I do, it can be a juggle. Sometimes. Yeah, it's a juggle, <laughs> you know. And and and, and it, I mean, it's weird for me not to be in the mortgage business anymore. So I always go, you know, people, how is it being retired? I said, you know what? I don't have any real estate agents asking me where the docs are after I submitted a loan two hours ago, you know? <laughs> Nobody's asking me for quotes. So it's, I mean, for me, it's great. I just like the world has changed. And, you know, when you do something for so long and then it's like, oh, well, rates went down. doesn't really matter anymore, you know? So... <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we always have open positions. I don't know if you network for family, maybe you want a different route, maybe move out to Colorado, whatever, you know, you just I, let me know. I, we'll, I, we'll make I room. Have, <laughs> I am gracefully done. I, I, my days of working like that are over. Yeah. Well, let, let's get into some of the uh, the, the economics because I know, you know, it's stuff you're super passionate about. Take take me back to last April, right? COVID hits, we'll call it maybe late 2019 when it was starting, to just starting to, people were hearing about it. And then we get to March and we have this shutdown. And you publish an article uh, about the recovery in April, like right on the heels of that. And so talk, talk me through so that and some of your it's, thoughts. It's fascinating for me because I, I'm a historian by trade and I think so to me, it was like, even though people know me as a housing person, my love and passion is tracking economic cycles. And I thought that no matter what I do, whenever the net, whenever the next recession comes, we have to be able to write it and document it and show people. Because what happened after the Great Recession is that post 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 the recovery, there was a lot of borderline conspiracy theories that are running around the internet, things that don't make sense. So I thought no matter what I do in life, whatever, whenever the next recession comes, it has to be documented in, in a correct way. So being a American expansion bull, like I was, you know, you get targets put on you and, you know, that's just part of the game. But what happened interesting is that a lot of people thought uh, the U S was going into a re recession because the yields inverted in 2019. And actually, one of my bigger forecasts was I, I believe the yields would invert in 2018. I, it was part of my forecast at the end of 2017. So when the inverted yield curve happened, I said, uh, we already kind of had that. Some of the economic data will get better. And it happened in 2019. Some of the data got better. But 2020 was very unique in the sense that January and February, and when I wrote the economic uh, AB recovery model, I, I separated into three things, BC before coronavirus, AD after the disease, and AB, America's back. 
But I wanted to give people certain data lines and dates. The dates were really important uh, to, to the recovery that once you visually can see this happening, you need to go with it. And you need to kind of ignore kind of all the noise. So come February, COVID is a legit thing. So I, I remember writing the uh, chaos theory, the butterfly effect, saying that, hey, if this happens, guys, you know, bond market's going to go down, stocks go down. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing any of us can do. But don't overreact because we've had many times in the previous expansion where we've taken shocks out. Of course, I say this is the mother of all shocks. This is Thanos snapping his fingers and the whole world was, you know, uh, uh, offline. But come April 7th, uh, and I think I think everybody knows that people look at the bond market differently. And I before before yields and rates uh, collapse, I thought the 10 year yield should range between negative 21 basis points and 62 basis points. Uh, that is recessionary yields to me. So that's what I'm looking for. And that March 9th, that big day, that the big collapse in yields, I think we got to as low as 32 uh, basis points. And the bond market was selling uh, selling off of margin calls. There was all these things. But come April 7th, I was confident enough to say, okay, because the 10-year yield is at 73 basis points, as crazy as this sounds, this is telling me that we're going to be okay in Q3 and Q4. Now, of course, everybody's like, there's no way there's an, we're going to be in this. Said, okay, but but just follow the model, follow the key data lines. And for me, the St. Louis Financial Stress Index was, was a big one, jobless claims falling. All these things typically move in line with each other. And what recently happened is the NBER just basically said that it was a two-month recession. If you correlate it to all economic data, leading economic indicators, uh, index, and everything else, it looks, it looks about right. So the whole... Last year was just showing people stages about what was happening in the recovery. And oddly enough, COVID happened right in a period that I've been talking about for many years. Housing had the weakest recovery from 2008 to 2019. That's been something that I've been talking about for many years. I probably didn't do the best job of trying to explain it. But when I think about a recovery, you think of mortgage demand, new home sales, housing starts. And if you look back at it, it was the weakest recovery ever. Also, you had missed sales and estimates in 2013, 14, and 15 for new home sales and housing starts. And uh, 2018, you had a supply spike. But years 2020 to 2024 has the best housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. And I don't consider that a boom. I consider it replacement buyers. So you're just handing it off to the millennials and then move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors. You take the whole aggregate whole. Housing should be fine. So here's COVID. Everybody's back in 2008 mode. Housing is going to crash. The bubble boy talked about, you know, 50, 60, 70. Remember, if you're a bubble boy, you either are saying housing is going to go back down to 2012 levels in a very short amount of time or 1996 levels. So uh, you use that word, you got to own it. So my work was just to show a pathway how this was going to happen. First of all, demographics were much better now. It wasn't good in 2008. That was the whole premise of the weakest recovery ever in housing. But household balance sheets were good right before COVID. The the economy was expanding. I think a lot of people that I see make mistakes were actually thinking the U.S. was going into a recession. If you look back in the data, especially February, housing broke out authentically in February 2020. The only thing is that that data came in March, in the middle of March. And guess what? Right, we're, all, right. we're, all, we're all hoarding toilet paper then. So nobody cares. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, nobody's going to remember this. So I even wrote a specific article, the BC data, to show people how good the economy was moving along back then. So every month that started to come by, 
you know, the data started getting better. Yeah. You know, leading economic indexes were rising. Purchase application data hit a V-shaped recovery. So then... Pretty quickly, too. Pretty quickly, too. Within six weeks, the data bottomed and started to recover. People buy homes, right? Millions and millions of Americans buy homes a year. Uh, one of the things I always try to stress, it's very rare post-1996 to get existing home sales under $4 million. So you have the biggest demographic patch ever, and then you got mortgage rates, which are low. So it should recover, right? And I, I stress that to my bearish friends, wait until July 15th and then to see the June data, you know, and, and don't do the crash call yet. You're going you're gonna to miss this. And what happens is you already had the V-shaped recovery. Then the, the, the bad side of housing happened, um, home price growth. So it's funny, the, the irony is that my biggest fear is that total inventory in the United States of America has been falling since 2014, uh, eight years now. Purchase application data has been rising. Nothing great, but just rising since 2014. When you have an extra kick, it doesn't even have to be much. When you have an extra kick in demand, what happens is that that inventory channel can fall even more. So come about the summer, I remember I wrote an article, demographics crush the housing bears. And when I said, hey, existing home sales are going to be positive. And then everybody's like, you're crazy. You, you got out of your minds. We're going to have a W. This is an L-shaped recovery. I said, no, you guys are all wrong. And so many people froze on calling this recovery because they were stuck in 2008 mode, even though the right. data was really it's evident. It's totally different. Yeah. And it's just, it's just the opposite. And it's not just the kind of the housing crash fanatics. A lot of economic people on Twitter froze. They couldn't believe it. They could not believe how fast we were recovering because they're still stuck in the 2008 mindset where you had a credit leverage, you had an over-leveraged uh, uh, banking system, you had weaker demographics, right? Prime age labor force growth peaks in 2007, it was a decline. There's all these things that are different. So getting people to believe this was much more difficult than I thought, because even though the data was showing it, they literally thought a W or this is an L shape or a K shape or whatever it is. No, we were there. So the last thing that I needed to see is, which was part of the model that the 10 year yield needs to get up to 1%. And the real goal is to get, and that was the call back on April 7th, we want to create a range between 1.33 and 1.60. If you look at the downtrend in bond yields, that should be created by then. Every Anybody who is still bearish would, would be crazy to say we're still in a recession then. And that's kind of. Gamblers are gamblers, though, Logan. Yeah. And, and <laughs> Once you take a, a position, there's, it's there's, there's, a, there's a, Yeah, there's, there's a whole. <laughs> And, and one of the things is I, I kept on showing my stock returns specifically because <laughs> we had a bunch of podcast stock traders who are, in a sense, always long the markets, but they're bearish on the economy. So one of the things that I would stress is like, here's the one time stock traders could have made the most amount of money. You know, I was able to retire in one year of returns. So where's everyone else? And they're hedged, but they're, they talk bearish, but they're always long. So because they have a, a lot of these people are well known, they, they, they talk bad about the economy, but they're always long the markets. And I always stress to people, ask people for their returns. They're going to show you they all made money. They just like to talk bad about the economy because these people are morbidly obsessed about the Federal Reserve. So this is not these are not the best group of people to listen to. This is basically our version of the great American bears of our lifetime. And I always say living in America past 1913 is hard for them that there's like a dark soul in themselves that they can't fill that void. So they always have to sound bearish, but they're long stocks. So part of the, part of the, the model was to keep on showing the returns and going, where are the American bears? America's powerful. Yeah. 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 P-shaped recovery, historic. 
A hundred years from now, they'll go back in time because of social media. Everybody recorded this stuff. So they'll get to remember who actually provided an economic model to showcase piece by piece. And then the recovery started happening. Now we're in year one of the expansion, which means that you go back to traditional cycle reading, which is very boring, but it's probably the most it's the, it's the correct thing to do. And that's why I always say my work is not very exciting. It's just basically channel reading a lot of economic data and putting uh, demographic components in and what the government does. And there's all these other factors, but it worked this time. And when people were talking about oh, the depression is here, home prices are going to crash, home sales are going to crash, even though- Go even though get your toilet stuff. paper. Yeah. It was just, <laughs> it, it, it was, I mean, I just think like that was it for me. Like if I, if I die tomorrow- I, I did my work. You, you feel know? good about it. Yeah. I just like, you know, and if people say, well, you're just so pro America always. Well, well, no, bleep, bleep, bleep. Come on. Like, why would I like, why would I, why would I sit every single day and troll the United States of America if I live here? Right. You know, so it, it, it meant a lot to me to show the model, the why factors. And that's so much the, the final, the final outcome. Show people a model for them to the pathway to work, to walk. And then it can make sense. And I think, that begrudgingly, some of my haters actually, yeah, it, it worked, you know. So now we're on a we're in a different phase, you know. The I retired the America's Back Recovery Model on December 9th, and now we have to go into the expansionary. And so everything has changed, but that was a historic time in U.S. economic history, and it was the United States of America. I always say the United States of America strength is its people, and we're the only really mature economy in the world that has a growing prime age labor force, right? We have replacement workers and buyers and consumers. That's so economics uh, one yeah, one. Ja ja Japan doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. Europe doesn't have it. You know, we have the reserve uh, currency of the world. And here we go. Year one. We led the world, and there's no going back from that, right? And that's the beauty of it, that all these people who've been timestamping these collapses and everything, they can't take it back. End of story. They timestamp themselves for the rest of their life. So I thought there had to be a person that actually, you know, it's really boring, but do it, but do it the right way. Because economics done right is boring, and you always want to be the detective, not the troll. You mentioned demographics a couple of times in there, and I know we've talked about this a little bit. The, the demographic patch that we're going through being a big reason for for the housing growth, right? That and when you when you take that into account with historic lows, I mean, I've I've been in lending since '99. I mean, I thought post Brexit, you know, was the lowest rates we would ever see, and then here we are, you know, selling close to two percent thirty year fix for a moment yeah, there. It like, was it was how, really how do you hard. quantify like how big of it's a huge impact, but also there's some negative with that price growth that has come along. Here's, I mean, here's, here's an interesting thing. If you just look at the 10-year yield, and, and, I, and I go back to 2018. 2018, there was an economics conference here in Orange County. There was a, there was a few economists and myself. And I, on that day, there was an article that uh, the Wall Street Journal had. 50 economists said that rates are going to have to go up. And at that conference, people were telling me rates are going to have to go up. I literally said, no, that, that's... That four-decade downtrend is, is testing its level. Rates are going to go down as a part of the, the forecast for 2019. Even talking about the 10-year yield could get under 2%, you know, again, and that would be basically within the channel that I've talked about. And I remember people just looking at me, they're like, there's no way. And I had to go up to the wall and just point the chart out and go, look at that beautiful downtrend that has always been intact. 
why would why would I think this is going to reverse? Right. So, um, you know, sometimes it's as easy as trend is your friend and, you know, telling people that, hey, listen, we're going to have a two handle in mortgage rates than a, a instead of a six handle. You know, people thought, what? That's crazy. But if you just look at the trend, like a lot of people focus on the MBS market, which I never talk about. I never talk about the MBS market. In my I've world. noticed that. And I, I will. Let's let's get into that a little bit. But but, I, I, you know, the, the low rates and the demographics are certainly been a been a thing here. We have just a little bit more buyers now. It's not a credit right. boom. It's not a sales boom. We just had a little more. And what's happening right now is this is a supply shortage inflationary story. So by by the end of summer, I'm like, oh boy, here it comes. You know, some of the interviews I've done for Bloomberg, I said, we got to worry about home prices take it off. And then one of the reasons I created the forbearance crash bros was that, you know, you know, last year that, oh, don't worry, forbearance. Everybody's gonna forbearance is gonna go to 10, 15, 20 million, and home prices are gonna crash. And everybody said that forbearance is gonna go down. So I had to document why, because the loan quality credit post 2010 was excellent. If you look at homeowners, disposable income uh, for uh um, the percentage of what they're paying per the mortgage payment is the lowest levels ever recorded in history. FICO scores are high. No exotic loan debt structures post 2010. So it is it is it's, it is what literally one of the most sexiest economic data lines we'll ever see in our lifetime. Nobody cared about it. So forbearance was near five billion, and we're under 1.86 billion now. Currently, the GSCs, the liquidity ratios, are 1.836 or 1.83 percent currently. That was not. The forecast that a lot of people said thought people thought would be 10, 15, 20% delinquency ratios. And it did the exact opposite. Why? Because the people that bought homes after 2010 were qualified. They're homeowners. They're not investors. They, they want to stay in their homes. So it made sense that, especially when the jobs are coming back, that they would find a way to stay in their homes. And that's what happened. So, but showing people why it happened was more important than the final result. You know that you bring up the jobs, and and when I started way back, you know that was the first thing I was always told to look at is follow the jobs, follow the jobs. Like if job if people are working, delinquencies will be low. the 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 chances for foreclosures and things like that will be will be on the low side, right? Obviously, we lost a lot of jobs. You know, certain sectors got crushed in in COVID, but. I mean, I think we've done a pretty darn good job of recovering, uh, uh, no pun intended, a pretty good job of, of getting jobs back online. But also there's a ton of support that the government has offered yeah. to help keep. You know, it, it, it always annoys me when I see people post articles about this large amount of delinquent loans and they think that that necessarily means that we're going to have this big housing crash. Delinquency doesn't necessarily mean it's going to foreclose. You know, here, that, to that point, it's, you know, my counterparts in other countries always say that, why are Americans so obsessed with crashes? Because, you know, Canada, <laughs> Australia, you know, New Zealand, none of them actually had a crash like we did. I said, just because the housing bubble crash, it created a, a business model of grifting of calling crashes, you know, click my website, read my seminar. And the problem I've always saw is that these people actually don't provide economic models. And when they actually talk about charts, it's really painful to watch. So it's just like, okay, this, this doesn't make sense. If demand is stable, it's really hard to have escalating inventory. And, and, you know, in fact, I, I literally wrote that article on April 10th last year saying, 
the velocity of inventory is not like a stock, right? You know, stocks go up and down with margin debt. Housing is is is, is, is so much more sticky, but they are they have to be forced sellers. So, and then demand also has to fall down when that happens. So, when demand is stable, the ability for inventory to skyrocket is is, is very limited. And that's that that was the whole premise of creating the forbearance crash bros. You have to document this stuff so people can understand why why they were wrong. So the front load purchase application data was fine. It's it's always been fine. It's it's still fine today. But for some reason, there's this almost bloodlust fascination with watching people's home values go down and watching people lose their homes that then it became like, oh my God, they're not quitting. You know, like our, our country is fighting back through a recovery and people are dying and they're literally still pushing the housing crash thesis. So it just had to be pounded down month after month after month to show people these are not economic people. They just want you to click their site because nobody... Like I always say, these people don't believe this because nobody would actually say you run into the best housing demographic patch ever and you have the lowest mortgage rates ever. And that is the reason that you would have. And currently right now, it would be an 82% crash in prices in one year. Like it doesn't work that way, you know? So unless you show people why, then, you know, they're, they're allowed to get away with a lot of the stuff. So a lot of the things is uh, per capita income and home prices. In 2002 to 2005, per capita income uh, uh, was just trending along, but home prices accelerated, uh, and that was based on credit. So you ha- you saw that divergence in the data line. It, I mean, I mean, like the housing bubble is very evident. Credit boom, speculation boom, everything was running. Here it wasn't in the case. Or the the, the 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 odd thing is that you know per capita income was above home prices throughout the for the majority of the uh, expansion. So it, there was no overheating housing market. There was no housing bubble. It was, it, was a, it was literally the weakest recovery ever. Millions of people buy homes here. There was no booming demand. So going into this demographic patch, you have good replacement buyers. That's I, I always say replacement, replacement buyers. Think of it as that, and it'll show why their credit boom isn't happening. Even today, if you look at it, especially adjusting to inflation, Mortgage debt is not even higher than what it was during the housing bubble years. And we're talking about a 13-year uh, 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 time frame for this to occur. So that, that needed to be explained. Because even my economist friends uh, during the recovery phase are like, why are people buying homes? 20 to 30 million people are unemployed. And so you simply neglected the 133 million people working, right? And that was always the case. So People go, well, it's and the money's because, cheaper than it's ever been. Yeah. You well, <laughs> people people buy homes every year. It, it is the cost of shelter to your capacity to own the debt. It's not an investment. So it was such a quick recovery that people couldn't even like spend their time trolling out, you know, newsletters about the impending crash, and then it just took off. And now the reason why I say this is the most unhealthiest housing market post 28 is that. I created like a, a price gauge model for the five year and five year time frame, years 2020 to 2024. And I said, I remember talking to a friend saying, if we just had 23% home price growth through this time, consider it us lucky. 
And they're like, what? 23% growth? Americans are poor. They can't buy homes. And look at that. Within 18 months, it's already exploded. Yeah. So I think here in Arizona, the yeah. year over year was like. Yeah. I mean, every, everywhere is just, and this is just a pure supply inflationary issue. And that is the, like the worst of the worst. Americans are bidding for homes just because there's not enough of them. We didn't have this happen in the previous expansion. And all we have is just, just a little bit more demand now. So that's why I say the, the number one thing for me is to see the days on market grow. And then when that occurs, things should be okay. Like whatever the market does, that's fine. But when you're forced to bid against 10 or 11 people, that's not a good thing. And, and I believe, I believe inventory channels will rise. Well, certain levels will get to, and we'll be okay. Uh, uh, but, but what's happening in, in the end of 2020 and 2021 the most unhealthiest housing market post 2008. You brought up inflation and that came up as a common theme to ask about is, you know, your interpretation of short-term inflation over the next, you know, year and a half, two years, let's say. So, you know, for me, it's, it's always a, 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 a big issue. When we look at post 1996, Everybody that says inflation is going to grow out of because the Fed is the money supply, all that stuff never happened. It was an extremely very low growth of inflation. We had the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history. But one of the things I talked about, especially on Twitter, is the inflation playbook. If you look at the history of global pandemics, there's always a shortage, right? So it's you don't have a functioning system when you have a global pandemic. So the ability to provide goods and services simply aren't there. Uh, so we're going to see extremely hot short-term inflation. And I put my money where I'm at this. I'm literally retired because I bet on inflation taking off again, you know, especially in energy and steel. So which makes me funny because I, I see all these inflation people and none of them actually took money embedded on this either. They just have little small positions. It drives me nuts. I say, you guys are all talking about inflation and you didn't even you didn't even make money off of it. And I'm not even the inflation guy. So short term, there are some aspects of inflation that are going to look crazy. I mean, lumber prices already crash. You already see the used prices of cars fall down. The chip shortage is a, is a bigger deal than most people are are are, are giving it. Uh, it's not it's still not getting it's still not getting enough credit out there. You're, you're talking about microchips. Yeah, the the, the chip. Yeah, over time, this that aspect will fix itself, right? Because it, to everyone's benefit, it makes especially these exporting countries and they make money shipping goods, and we have a, a demand for it. So it's a shortage based inflation, except shelter. And one of the things I've talked about the last few months, rent inflation is going to take off, right? Because again, you have this demographic patch here. We never built in enough apartments over the years. So naturally, people need somewhere to live. So now you see the shelter. Shelter inflation is the biggest component of core CPI. That is taking off. Now, it'll catch up. It's, it's lagging some of the other data, but it'll stay there and be sticky. So you get you you have to wait till things start functioning normal, and then some of those pandemic. And that's why I always stress if you if you if you read the history of pandemics, you see the shortage issue that happens a year or two after. Those things should fade, but the shelter inflation will kick in. Um, but outside of that, you know, it's shortages are uh, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. But supply shortage inflation is very painful because you like, for example, housing is we just had a we just had a couple hundred thousand 
more home sales. Like I always tell people, 2020 ended at 5,640,000. That's only 130,000 more than 2017 levels, right? It's not like housing is booming. But because we had a we had a couple hundred thousand more home sales from 2019 levels, that shortage of homes creates supply-based inflation, not so much demand. And housing's credit-based, so it's different. But you see what's going around the world. Things aren't working normal. And because of that, you're going to see hot inflation. And we had this happen at the end of 2008 to 2012, but that recovery was much milder. So you had these really big percentage gains. But in time, some of the pandemic stuff will will, will, uh, come back down. And always remember, shelter inflation can be sticky here. Core CPI should be over 2% much longer because the demographics here are better. Uh, I just don't think the U.S. is this booming, hot economy and wage growth is going to take off and, 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 and prices. All these demographic deflationary factors have been here or staying here. China is not the growth engine like it used to be. Its rate of growth is falling. Japan's 40, 40% of the population is going to be dead by the end of the century. Europe still can't grow because they don't really have the best demographics there. So these things will moderate in time. But the shelter inflation does have staying power. And that is the biggest component of core CPI. And we, we've talked about what what would cool the housing market, which is to the chagrin of most mortgage people. You want you want to discuss that a little bit? Well, housing, <laughs> here's the thing. For, for me, the, at least what will give it a little bit of pause, right? A little well, yeah. bit of some healthiness back you to know, the market. You know, I, I, I don't even have a very high mortgage rate level to, to cool down the housing market. It was just 3.75. The only problem is that my peak forecast for 2021 was 1.94. So you can't you can't get there in 2021. So uh, that's another concern. When you don't forecast rates to go at a certain level, you're like, oh boy. So what, what higher rates do is just cools the market down. It doesn't crash the market. And I go back to 2018. We had a lot of housing bears in 2018 because mortgage rates were rising. But if you actually look at it, we had near 6 million total home sales. So that was their crash thesis. Uh, purchase application data was only negative like three weeks out of the year. The new home sale market got hit. That, that was the sector that got hit. I always think the existing home sales market has a bigger advantage over the new home sale market. But 5% mortgage rate, what it did, it create negative real home price growth very briefly, which I wrote was like the most healthiest thing for the housing market. But everybody's like, oh no, we're not selling homes fast enough. I go, no, this is good. This is good. You, you, you want to cool down. And then what happened? Rates went lower and then housing picked back up. And now the demographics kicked in. And we have this. Unfortunately, we have this very unhealthy housing market clearly. But if rates get above 3.75%, the rate of growth should cool. It's not going to crash the market or anything like that. But we need days on market to grow. The longer we stay here at this level, the more unhealthy it'll be. So Inventory is rising. Inventory has been rising since February, but that's the seasonal shift up in, in inventory we see every year. We need inventory to stick and rise into 2022. So uh, that article I wrote for Housing Wire a few weeks ago that inventory should be coming. There's no credit boom, so it should pick up to about 1.52 million and higher. 1.52 million to 1.94 million was actually the the level where I thought you know you had a more balanced market. And people had choices. Uh, that was that 2018, 2019 five timeframes. Uh, existing home sales range between like 4.9 million to 5.6 million. So somewhere around there, that would be extremely healthy. Where I can be wrong 
is that I'm running into years 2022 to 2023, which is the, are the two biggest sweet spot years ever recorded in U.S. history for housing because ages 30 to 31 will be the biggest ever because uh, they're the biggest group right now. So if I'm wrong and inventory doesn't increase, it just means that there's too many buyers to prevent the inventory levels to get above 1.52 million. And I don't see a credit boom. Uh, you have to do major COVID-19 adjustments. So everything looks like inventory should rise, but we'll see. You know, so far the inventory that's increasing now is seasonal, but we need it to we need it to stick. We need total inventories to stick and go higher. And then people have choices. And when people have choices, they don't bid against 15 to 20 people on a house. I mean, to the to the credit piece, I was talking to a couple other loan officers and uh, one of them had brought up that the average declined mortgage is like a 730 something credit score the 730 i mean think about that for a second yeah I mean, it's, that it's, doesn't it's, tell you you know the the paper that's out there is is as good as can be like one of the one of the more popular charts i like to show is the new york fed has the mortgage duration fico score and 760 yeah. scores just blown up higher yeah, and it's, it's unbelievable. And, and it's not and that's just one aspect i say the most important aspect of credit never gets talked about in the last 10 years. There's no exotic loan debt structures anymore, right? Yeah. There's no 80-20 IOs. There's no 80-10-10 option arms. There's no there's no products that could facilitate a credit boom. So people you go, you the five-year prepay in there. Yeah, yeah. People, <laughs> like, I, I, I have to convince people, why, why do I keep on saying replacement buyers and not housing boom? Because credit will not facilitate speculation demand. So there's limits. So I always go, 6.2 million and higher. New home sales, existing home sales together. During years 2020 to 2025, we should be able to get 6.2 million or higher home sales. So far, 2020 and 2021 has passed. The only way something bad happens if home prices escalate out of control, and then when mortgage rates rise, it cools the market down to a little bit below that. So this is what's happening right now. So naturally, this is why I keep on saying it's an unhealthy housing market. We need more days on market, then you can get a little bit of equilibrium. And I've already gone through my five-year cumulative growth. So in a, in a perfect uh, economic model wor world, home prices would be flat to negative for the next three years and everything works itself out. But that's only on paper, right? And that's only, like in my, in my perfect world, that would be the case. That necessarily never happens. So you have to adjust everything to what's going on. You have to track everything daily. And, and I think that is just very boring for most people to do. But for me, it's like, a, so it's a lot of fun. Technically, we're still in a pandemic, right? We're not. There's still a moratorium that's going to come to an end. We'll see how that stands. But, you know, the Fed has been in the time that I've been an originator has been involved in QE almost as many years as they, they haven't. And so, you know, there's some questions about, you know, what happens on us if we get a slide or some sort of huge sell off in the market and the tools that the Fed has to, you know, come in and, and support if they have to. Obviously, they've done a lot, ton of helicopter money. There's all kinds of stuff that's happened. But but what's your take on that? Here's why I never talk about MBS. It is the most irrelevant discussion for housing economics that I think of, just like the M2 velocity charts are the most irrelevant economic uh, data lines. So what is more important, and I wrote that article on Housing Wire just recently last week, if people wanted to read that, the long-term downtrend in mortgage rates, demographics are way more powerful than the Fed. 
So one of the reasons why I said, you know, this year, you could probably, you could even see rates get as low as two and a quarter to 2.375 is that the, depending on when you have a stock market correction, which drives money into bonds, uh, you have headline risk. We haven't had a stock market correction since March of 2020. So uh, the bond market ranges are looking exactly alike. But what I've seen, and we're, we're doing this again, is that in the last last expansion, when QE1 was ending, people said, mortgage rates in the bond market have to go higher. It did it. Yields went lower. When QE2 ended, people said, mortgage rates in the bond market has to go higher. Everything's going to crash. Bond yields went lower and mortgage rates went lower. When QE3 ends, that was a big tamale, and taper happens, Rates are going to skyrocket. The entire economy is going to collapse because of QE. Bond yields went lower while the taper was accelerating toward the end. And when QE3 ended, mortgage rates didn't do anything. Bond markets didn't go up. QE has been the bane and strife of so many American citizens in terms of how they look at economics that it, it, it's just like it, does, it never even really crosses my mind. So I have to explain to people why... Why does the bond yield keep on going down when QE ends? Economic growth, inflation expectations, what the bond market is doing with the equilibrium of all economics around the world is much more powerful than QE. And this is why yields fell every time the QE1 ended, QE2 ended, and QE3 ended. And QE3 ended in 2014. And for that five-year period, the 10-year yield stayed in that channel that I've always talked about. So these people moving to the, they move the goalposts. It's the balance sheet now. It's the balance sheet. Well. Okay, QE3 wasn't it. It's the balance sheet. God, I, I hate to say it. The anti-central bank people are a cult. They are. They just are so morbidly obsessed about the Fed that they forgot that demographics and all these other things matter more. The Fed, the Fed can't print babies. If they could, Japan's economy would be growing faster, but they can't. You know, debt to GDP in Japan is like, what, 260, 70%. They're a dying population. Their bond yields are negative, right? So th there is a four-decade four trend here, and it's staying in place. What, what could happen in the U.S., what can break this long-term downtrend, is if the government spent money like every year. Like, this is one of the things I wrote early in there. The government kept on pounding out like $6 trillion spending plans, you know, and the world actually joined in. Then you could get, you know, you can break that downtrend. It's just not happening. And, and part of the reasons why I, I talked about that 133 to 160 range back on April 7th, Go look at the 10-year yield in, in 2018. Look at the peak. Take a crayon or a pen or a marker or everything. Draw that line all the way down. Okay? It'll be very evident, right? These channels have stuck for four decades for a reason, and it's not the MBS. It's not the Fed. It's not the QE. They're sticking for a reason, right? So don't focus so much on the Fed. Remember, we've had tons of stock corrections in the previous expansion, uh, we had two near bear markets, and every single time people say, oh, here comes a recession, blah, the stock market knows, and none of it was the case. The only thing that slowed the economy down or stopped the expansion was a global pandemic, and that lasted two months. The United States of America is the only economic superpower left in the world, right? It has the demographics, it has, it has the reserve currency of the world, it has the biggest military. Okay, we have unfair advantages over Europe. Japan, China, anything. And if we flexed our muscle right when we needed it too. So it happened, COVID happened in 2020. 2020 has been the year I've been talking about. Here it is. Here comes the household formation that took all these years because people got to, you know, I, every conference I go in, people rent, they date, they mate, they get married. Three and a half years after marriage, they have kids. 
housing was always a 2020 to 2024 story. Not a credit boom, not a sales boom, just replacement buyers. That's it. That is not sexy, but that's what happened. Uh, and, and that explains why more Americans are buying homes with mortgages. It's not BlackRock. It's not institution. It's American citizens. Why? Because if you look at housing data post-1996, it's really rare to get sales under $4 million. And here's the best demographic patch ever and the lowest mortgage rate ever. So this is why I say the housing bubble boys don't really believe this. Nobody's this crazy to actually functionally read the census data and think, wow, the two things that drive housing are the best ever, 82% crash. No, they're not crazy, right? They're just trolling. Because a second grader, I could get any second grader off the street and be like, hey, look at that. Does that look like a lot of people are coming in? Yeah. Okay, there you go. It's just it's just really easy to post a, a GIF on Twitter and, and say something snarky is all it is. Yeah, it's just like it's just like at some point you guys gotta like give it up. And most of these people are baby boomers, right? So I always like to think about baby. It's a lot of people that grew up in the seventies. They're like petrified of inflation, even though inflation rate of growth is falling, and they can't give it up. And and a lot of these are stock traders in New York. Who, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. Are you long stocks? Oh, yes, you are long stocks. You're bearish on the economy, but you're long stocks. And this is why you ask all your friends who are bearish on the economy, are they long stocks? They were always long stocks. They all made money and they're still angry because they hate the Federal Reserve. I think the two quick takeaways is, are you bearish and long on stocks? Because we're going to call you out and the Fed can't print babies. Those are the two takeaways. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people, I love it. people make people like think I'm, I'm kidding when I say death and sex are really important things to economics. Right. Uh, there's no Dorian Gray labor force. Baby boomers are going to die. They need to be replaced. This is one of the reasons why job growth is somewhat limited. Right. We're just we're just swapping out older people with younger people. So there's limits to what you can do. The U.S. just has a lot of younger people. Right. So they can replace them. They're not growth. Our population growth is falling. Right. Uh, immigration is not the same like it used to be. But you can't replicate what happened in the last century, right? So everyone is like slowing down. So it's a it's a race to the end, right? That's it. But we have millennials and Gen Z. Gen Z is massive, right? People don't talk about them, but they're massive as well. Both those two combined are bigger than the total population in Japan by 40 million. So we have good replacement workers. And as long as you look at it, that it keeps things at bay. The U.S. is not a super fast growing economy, right? It's never going to be. What we have right now is this rebound effect. Growth is going to slow down. Manufacturing data is going to slow down to a degree. And we just go back to the trend. And that trend had the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history with 487 different crisis events. It didn't matter. It was only COVID. That lasted two months. Leading economic index bottomed out in April, been rising ever since today and hit another all-time high. Believe in people that believe in economic models. Believe in boring people. Boring people can be sexy, <laughs> right? And this is what I'm telling you, it's just like, I, it's grotesquely boring to just look at some of the data. But if you really care about it, which I don't, I don't think a lot of people do, then that that works because it gives you a, a series of data lines to work with. And then when those series of data lines get bad, right? You know, uh, definitely there you go. There's your recession watch, and and, and, and in this case with COVID. There was actually no real recession. Only three of my six recession flags were even checked off. And then the data got really good in February. And I'm like, okay, but still, COVID is here. So we got to take it. America's back recovery model was April 7th. We've been rising ever since. And nobody could take this back. This is historic. A hundred years from now, they'll look back and go, who was right? Who was wrong? Because it was the United States of America. 
that took the world out of this recession. And everybody is still trying to play catch up to us. And we got legs here, right? We have legs. It's year one in the economic expansion. And we're not going to make the same mistakes that everybody did in the last expansion, calling for a recession every seven minutes. We are going to grind this out day in and day out with old, boring data. Obviously, coming from a lending, a lending background for as, as long as, as you and your family have been in it, you know, there's a, a lot of stories that are out there, a lot of change, right? You have the whole thing with NAR and the DOJ. You've got the CFPB change before the former director leaves. You know, he puts in the adverse market fee, the changes for loan level pricing for second homes and investments. And by the way, that was a dirty political shot that they did on that one because that was done at night. That was With not the adverse market fee. Yeah, the adverse market oh, fee. Yeah. They, they always give you 60 days to get a heads up. They did it at night so nobody could adjust to it in the next morning. That was a that was that was a that's why it was a it was a it was a low blow. It was a, it was a cheap shot done on purpose. You know, uh, uh, there was no need for that. Or unless you're going to do it, you give people time. So that has changed, of, of, of course. So that, that, that was a positive. Oh man, I mean certainly none of us in the in you know originating were a fan of that. There always is a level of oh by the way this is changing. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean it was never done that way. There was always no. like you see sixty yeah. day or you know thirty whatever it was. It was never done. Like I, I remember hearing that news at eight o'clock at night, and they're like, oh by the way tomorrow morning it works. So you're adjusted to that. I'm like what? They actually did this in the night of day. Oh my god. But but I, I say all that to say there's a lot of nuanced things going on. I don't, I don't know if you heard there there's apparently a proposed bill about completely changing reserve requirements and basically taking it to summarize, right, the value of servicing rights on government loans, basically diminishing them, which I think would have a huge detrimental impact to the here's, independent here's, mortgage I, I got I got tons of questions on this. Let me put it to you this way. I think the administration right now, where they want to go, is just as long as lending is safe, they want to keep it fluid. And what's happened, and what I've always what I've always talked about, is that that as Freddie and Fannie, the conservatorship that they were in provided enough lending capacity in the longest expansion ever. I don't think anybody's going to try to rock the boat too much because the housing market was actually one of the better things in this crisis. Your lips so in God's ears. Yeah. So I don't, I, I, I don't think, I don't think much can change too much on either side. I don't think they can change lending standards to be easy for anything of worth value. I mean, that was a big part of my work during the crisis that people said, Oh, well, credit's going to tight. Well, credit's going to tight for non-QM loans, but outside of that, everything else is going to be free. Uh, Freddie and Fannie being in conservatorship allowed that to happen. So I, let's wait and see because I know there's a lot of speculative stories on what's going to happen, but to me, they still want to make credit available. And that was like one of the, uh, one of the unsung heroes of the crisis was that uh, the American financial lending for housing was fluid, right? There was a few sectors. That, and that working from home, by the yeah, way, yeah, which nobody home. ever thought it, was possible. Yeah, and, and, and it worked. So I don't think you want to rock the boat too much, but politics is politics. I, I, I try to stay away from it as much as possible because it's the word itself. Poly ticks. Many blood sucking parasites. <laughs> I mean it's not for people that believe in math, facts, and data, it's just like, whoa, we don't want we don't that's like looking at Medusa. 
straight in the face every day. So I, that's like, I stay away from that as much as possible, but I understand that it gets crazy and it can get really crazy really fast. So uh, be patient. Let's see what happens. But typically they just, they want to keep things moving uh, uh, normally. So, so it was actually one of the beneficial things in this, uh, in this crisis that credit actually flowed for the majority of, uh, of home buyers and refinancers. We had that mortgage, mortgage market meltdown, of course, in March, and people right. had to deal with that. But outside of that, in general sense, it was okay. Well, I mean, that's what I was just going to say. Like, there was a minute there where in, in March, as this happened, we were like, oh, my God. Was, yeah, it was, you know, you know, you know, what's interesting. It was, it was March 9th. I actually tweeted out, oh, we're about to have a mortgage market meltdown. And people are like, what? And like real vision, which are, which are a lot of bearish takes. They said, can you come and talk to us about, you know, this? Because you, 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 know, you usually, I said, yeah, it's different this time around. This is like margin calls and EPOs. And stuff. Yeah. This is not like the banking crisis. So it's much different. I think they were kind of bummed out. But it's just things things don't usually repeat themselves because what typically happens in a bubble doesn't happen. It, bubbles typically don't happen in, in the same sector back to back. Historically, it doesn't happen. So credit was fine. Credit flowed. There were some positive things on that. Of course, politics, you could take you to some crazy place. But but let's be patient and see what, what the final outcome is because there could be a lot of rumors. Like if somebody, somebody pulled out a rumor that they're going to stop all cash out loans across America. I was like, what? Like who said who said that? You know, and Wells Fargo reduces all their credit lines. Oh, here comes the crash. And it's just like, there's so much garbage out there. And they're usually from the same type of person. So be, be careful, follow. Everyone should have boring, nerdy friends. <laughs> and if you don't have a boring, nerdy friend, seriously, my name, go to Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Okay. Yep. I literally just tell you what the data shows and just correlate with that. So having a boring, nerdy friend gives you an escape valve to, to kind of look back and get some sense because things aren't as chaotic as they seem to be. And COVID was just this one-time event. And now we get to see what's happening. We're just, we're, we're starting the expansion and we're going in. There's going to be lots of drama in, in every expansion, but but there are there are models to follow historically uh, and, and we just work off of those things. So you said something that really resonated with me, which is really uh, in the fabric of who I am, which is at the end of the day, we'll see, right? Like, the data gives you uh, some idea how to look forward, right? But at the end of the day, COVID happened, right? I mean, however we thought 2020 was going to, you know, and so now here we are and, and you know, we think we have a pretty good handle. And I, I, I think without any other type of black swan, I think the things that you talk about will very, very much come to fruition. COVID you know? did things to data lines that I never thought were functionally yeah, right. possible outside of, you know, people thinking a meteor was going to crush the earth. <laughs> and, and one week later, we're all alive. I mean, sticky data had waterfall dives and parabolic rebounds. It's, it it's historic. It's historic. But I always end off by telling everybody, in the end, every American bear since 1790 has failed. They have all failed. They will always fail. They're going to fail in this expansion. They're going to fail for cycles come and go. That's, that's part of the business cycle. It's part of the economic cycle. But these really crazy American bearish people since 1790, and we have them in every decade and every century, they have all failed. There is a graveyard of that buried, and we buried another one. Uh, everybody that thought the re recession was a depression and everything was going to crash, 
we recovered so fast that they couldn't even waste their time making junk newsletter sites. And that's the only thing that is that, oh my God, can you imagine if they spent money on it? They're going to be like six weeks later. Oh my God, it's what? The recovery? That's the only thing that I was like, oh God, if it was just a little bit longer, they would have wasted all that money and then just like, boom. So hey, I, I'm just happy, you know, I, I think you remember the implode meter uh, as as lenders were going out during yeah. the, uh, the crash there. I'm just glad that didn't happen. Before we go, please remind everybody where they can find your work and how they can connect with you on social. So as a lead housing, uh, a lead analyst for Housing Wire, my work is with them. That is the more technical data analytical work with them. So a lot of the juicy stuff is in there. If you just put my name down, Logan Morshami, Twitter, Instagram, there's fleets, there's stories. We, I try to go over every single data line daily. Uh, and, and also, um, uh, Logan is my blog. It's free. I don't write that much on there anymore. Once in a while I, I, I will, but just my name. And, and, and again, all I do right now, since I'm retired is just look at charts all day. That's it until I die. There's nothing else left for me to do. This will keep me sane. So, uh, that is, that's the place. And again, I, I emphasize, I'm not very exciting, but I will tell you what the data line is trying to, you know, to, you know, to express to the public. And uh, if that's your thing, then then I can be a good nerdy source. If you're looking for doom and gloom and crash and boom or whatever it is, I'm not your guy. I'm never going to be your guy. I appreciate it. I'm sure I'm sure I'll see you uh, talk to you again soon on Clubhouse. It's always fascinating to listen to you talk about this stuff. Definitely appreciate you taking out taking out some time to chat with us. Nerds rock. This was the Revenge of the Nerds. Yes, I love it. I love it. It was Revenge of the Nerds. The Nerds won this one. I I think maybe we we might have to rename the podcast. I got to get that naming right. All right, guys. This is uh, Tim Regan, branch manager for Pivot Lending here in Scottsdale, Arizona. You're listening to the Mortgage Hub on the Pivot Podcast. Appreciate you tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you, everybody. This episode was brought to you by Pivot Lending Group, NMLS 10995. Copyright 2021 Pivot, all rights reserved. Financial Funding Solutions Incorporated, DBA Pivot Lending Group. 10397 West Centennial Road, Littleton, Colorado 80127. Pivot does business in accordance with the Fair Housing Law and Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Pivot Lending is regulated by the Division of Real Estate, Colorado. To learn more or find a full listing of our state licensing, visit pivotlending.com or nmlsconsumeraccess.org. 